Ain't That Swell presents Chords. Today we're joined by Tom D'Souza. You might remember Tom from a previous episode of Core Lords. Uh, he grew up in Perth and survived a life of meth addiction and juvenile detention before relocating uh, to Indonesia and, and traveling around Australia and now continuing on this uh, kind of coming-of-age journey that he's on. Uh, he engaged in a pretty radical motorcycle journey from Bali to Sumba. And that's what we're going to hear about today. It's a it's a hell of a story. Fuck, man. The guy's ripping in. Uh, he speaks fluent Indonesian um, and just is engaging with the absolute grassroots, beating heart core of one of our beloved surfing destinations. Well, uh, yeah, let's get into it, man. Because the last time I spoke to you, you were just about to embark on this radical mission uh, across the archipelago mm. by motorbike. And mm. you've undertaken that and you've made it uh, pretty well as far east as you can go by bike, I'm guessing. I mean, maybe you can keep going to Timor from Sumba, mm. can you, by bike? I'm not sure. You, you can. It's just It just seems like once you get to this part of the archipelago, things, things get a lot slower, things get a lot further, things get a lot more remote and it's a lot, the bike becomes sort of more of a hindrance than, than a help, you know, it'd be a, yeah, it'd be a pretty, pretty sick part of the country to explore, but you definitely want some sort of vessel, I reckon. Um, yeah. If only you can put an outboard motor on the bike and <laughs> put around the Indian ocean on that. Eh? <laughs> well, I think a guy did try that at Chopes, didn't he? <laughs> He said it on fire or something as well. I think he's bloody... Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, man. So you've got a couple of episodes out already from the journey, and they're amazing. They're so sick. They're uh, mm. exactly the the style of journalism that I enjoy, where uh, you know you're talking to everyday people about their experience of life, and and for me, like that's where all the wisdom and um fascinating insights are found you know tr- truth is stranger than fiction and it's just for me endlessly mm. compelling to hear the everyday stories of um struggle uh in a place as impoverished as indonesia but also the the meaning they manage to kind of come up with uh, that allows them to circumvent poverty and, and still live happy uh, and healthy lives i, I really enjoyed it Mm, yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful country, you know. I mean, people here don't have a lot, but people here also don't don't need a lot as well, you know. It's one thing I've really enjoyed traveling around the country is one thing I really connected with is just how people find pleasure in the simple everyday things, you know, every everyday things in, in life, you know, family and um, eating together and 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 just sharing life with people that they love and, and people that they're close to it's they're they're kind of the things that are that are that are really important you know um and yeah it's 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 been really cool to experience that um i suppose this trip's been more more of a cultural adventure than um than just a, just a surf trip i think if it was just a surf trip it, it'd be pretty easy to be disappointed um, I mean, going to these places and having a look, it's it's kind of pretty hard to score straight off the bat. 
um, it's pretty rare to sort of just rock up to a place and and the waves are cooking. You know, you sort of you you got to put in a bit of time, and especially this this part of the country, it's 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 really difficult to get around as well. There's there's, I mean, most of the roads that run through the country that the 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 roads along the northern coasts are, are traditional trading routes um, that sort of provide access to a lot of safe anchorages that are kind of along that that that. Um, yeah, the, the the non-exposed sort of northern coast, and that the roads along the southern coast are, are pretty exposed and and pretty rough, and it's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty hard to get down to the beach. You know, it's kind of an all day affair. Google Maps isn't much help. A few times it's given me a bum steer and sort of sent me, you know, ended up on top of these cliffs, looking down at where I'm trying to go to, and got no way of getting down there. So yeah, you sort of just got to rely on the directions of local people, and and sometimes you know, there's no real going from spot to spot checking it's kind of yeah sometimes it's just a half day event actually trying to get to a spot and 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 have a look um so it's not it's not easy traveling it's it's not the sort of trip that you'd come on if you if you're kind of just looking to score and, and get waves um but yeah i mean for me it's 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 been about the experience it's been about experiencing um in its fullest a different a different country a different people and 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 learning from them um, and relaying some of their some of their stories and some of the things that I've come across along the way as well. Yeah, can you paint the scene of what Sumba looks like, uh, both geographically and culturally? I understand uh, they have a, a different belief system there. It's like animism or some form of like, uh, yeah, it's it's di- cult- like culturally and religiously distinct to the rest of indonesia and they, they still run those really ancient the, the horse riding festival i've seen there uh like mm. it, it's probably the the least touched place in all of indonesia right mm, mm, for sure i mean i suppose when i was coming to somewhere i was uh, what i'd heard was that was that it was one of the poorest parts in indonesia and that was kind of what i was expecting it's actually proved to be quite the opposite i, I think um they traditions and and their culture it's actually really quite an expensive um tradition and culture i mean a lot of people often they'll have ceremonies to celebrate things from like anything from building a new house to a death to a marriage to yeah all, all, all kinds of things um right now it's, there's uh yeah there's a there's a festival happening um to celebrate the start of the of the planting season they're coming out of wet season now um and so it, it's it's quite diverse and quite different there's a lot of different tribal groups which have which will have different beliefs in the, in the western part of sumba um there yeah there's no building or no no activity that's allowed to be undertaken to, to give everyone a rest um and and even if even if somebody dies um they're kept in the house and, and and looked after and and they're not allowed to be buried until until the end of that season's finished um so yeah they're, they're given a special room and, and people are invited in to come and, and offer uh, yeah, bring them things i haven't had the chance to come across that yet but yeah it's it's a real it, culturally it's really rich um yeah people say it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty poor place but i mean to celebrate a lot of their traditions um People often sacrifice animals like um, pigs, horses, buffalo, um, which are used. Each different animal is used to celebrate a different purpose, um, and these these things can be really expensive. Um, I went to a ceremony a little while ago where 
um, 12, 12 pigs were sacrificed uh, and each the pigs can cost up to up to 2000 US dollars you know so there's there's sort of 20 25 grand you know and yeah I mean for for an island that has a reputation of, of being one of the poorest parts in Indonesia it's actually um, yeah and, and people people here don't need a lot to live you know as I said that they're, they're, they're grateful for the simple pleasures that they have in life and and I suppose while money and financial income might be a Western way of of measuring wealth, I mean, I think I think here that the that the scale of measurement is very different, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's been pretty cool to experience that for sure. It's so ironic, man, because in my own personal life, I'm trying to basically reach a place that they exist in, which is to say, uh, you know, growing my own food, slaughtering my own food, uh, and living with as little money or as little need for money as I can. And I've actually been incredibly influenced by Indonesians, uh, you know, lived there for three years. And I, I noticed that exactly as you're pointing out, you know, they kind of live second world, like they're, you know, yeah, they, they don't have money and they don't have some basic things that they fucking deserve and need like healthcare. Um, but mm. yeah, like everyone or a lot of people have little plots of land where they grow their own food. They have chickens, goats. Uh, and, and so once you have housing and, and food sussed and, and a village and a community where you can trade, there's not such a need for money. And not only that, you're fully engaged with the natural world. Uh, you know, you're waking up when the sun comes up, you go on a bed when it goes down. Um, and, and so I believe that that is a, a much healthier and happier way to live, albeit with a few mm. Western caveats to that, you know, like it's good to to have some knowledge about health and, and wellness to incorporate in, into that kind of routine. So for me, my ideal lifestyle is a merger of a, a few, a bit of Western knowledge and healthcare and really an Indonesian subsistence style of life. I, I really believe in the value of that. Mm, for sure, and I think I think one thing that makes that difficult in the Western world is is that to pursue that life is very much an ind individual decision that you have to make, and you, you're swimming against the tide in some ways. Whereas here, everybody's kind of living in that way, and and, and you're able to rely on the people around you um, for support. You know, it's like yeah, if you don't, I mean, it's been interesting traveling around here. It's it's especially once you get over to the eastern side of the, the island. There's there's Basically, well, there, there's no tourism infrastructure at all. There are no hotels. There aren't even there aren't even places to eat to go and buy food. Um, so, I mean, the only way to really get around is to go, basically, to go into a family home and ask and say, "Hey, look, I'm I'm traveling. I, I, I like I'm hungry. Are you able like Are you able to make some food for me? Like, are you able to give me a place to stay?" Um, and people, people are so welcoming and, and so friendly, you know. It's, it, yeah, it's 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 really inspiring to see. Um, and I, I suppose one thing coming to this part of the country and and traveling in that way, one thing that's proved really vital is is the importance of language. I think I think without language, it would be, without any kind of Indonesian language skills, it'd be really difficult to 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 get around. Um, and it's 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 beautiful as well because that that language it has given me an insight into those people and the, their way of viewing the world as well. I mean, I think I think language is the window into the soul of a people, 
Um, I think one thing that that I mean, I think I think it's only really possible to learn a language while you're actually immersed in it and surrounded by it. I think it's difficult to learn a language from outside a country um, because I think a language is basically a people's way of describing the world in which they live in. And I think you, you can only the language comes secondary to to the understanding of that world. I think it's only once you understand the world that the people live in that you can understand their way of describing it. Um, so yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it, it, it's been interesting to get an insight into the world in which these people live, and also coming to understand the the language in which they use to describe it as well. Mm. And talk us through the experience of you know asking people for for food and housing and and, and tell us about some of the characters you've met in Sumba and the places you've stayed and the stories they've relayed to you. Mm. Um, yeah, on the on the western side of the island, there, there is some tourism infrastructure. Um, there's one area where there's a few surf camps. Um, there's yeah, there's there's a few waves around there, and and sort of a lot of the a lot of the tourism and a lot of the surfers seem to congregate in that in that area. Um, but once yeah, once you get over to the other side of the island, it's yeah, it gets pretty remote. The roads are really rough, um, and I mean it's kind of frightening at first. You know, it's it, yeah, it's we sort of went down. There was one wave, um, I was joined by a, a mate at one point um, and we we sort of were trying to get down to this beach. Um, we knew that, that, you know, we knew there might be waves down there. Um, and so, like, we, it was, oh, it, it was 12 k's from the village to get down there. It was a really, really rough road over this mountain range. We both went down about four or five times. We are sort of carrying all of our stuff in there. Um, I think we had about seven or eight liters of water each in our board bags a bag of rice i mean we thought we thought we'd, we'd asked one of the ladies from the homestay to pack us enough food for 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 for, for two or three days we sort of thought we were going to get down there and, and and open up these parcels loaded with rice and chicken and vegetables and all sorts of things to eat um we got down there and all, all we had was four little packs of rice and four boiled eggs it had to last us three days um so yeah, we we like riding down that road. Uh, my mate snapped. He snapped his surf rack halfway through. We had one strap that we were able to tie it back up with, um, and kept going. And there was a really gnarly hill that we were both struggling to get up. We'd sort of uh, yeah, we'd both come off the bikes about three or four times by that stage. Um, and there's there's no one around. You know, it's 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 yeah, it's really quite dry. It's it's quite remote. Um, and I'm sort of coming up this big hill. And I, I, I could, I, I went down. I fell off the bike. I couldn't, couldn't get it. And like the angle of the hill, there was no way that I would have been able to get the bike started again and 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 get the bike back up the hill without rolling backwards. And so I'm thinking, oh, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? I, I couldn't turn it around. And suddenly, these like four guys just walk over the hill. One of them's carrying, one of them's carrying a gun. The other two have got spears, and the other one's carrying a machete. I've gone, oh fuck, what's what's going on here? You know, mate was pretty scared. He's, oh, they got guns, they got spears. Um, and yeah, it like it started talking to them. They were they were deer hunters. They'd they'd it was it was the new moon, they'd been out camping down the beach looking for deer for the last week. And they were sort of walking back. It, it's I mean, Sumba's a place that has a lot of similarities to Aboriginal Australia pre pre-colonization, you know, they, they were just walking around hunting. Um and walking 
you know, relying on natural springs for water. Offer them some water. They said, no, no, there's a spring down there. We could, we could get some water from down there. Um, but yeah, these these I asked these guys for a hand, and they all put down their weapons and got behind the bike and, and sort of pushed the like pushed the bike to stop it from rolling back down the hill. And I, I got it going again and got it got it got it back down the hill. Um, so eventually, eventually we got down to this beach and opened up our little packs of food. And yeah, we're pretty disappointed when we saw what we had to last us the next like the next three days. You know, just four little packs of rice and four boiled eggs. Um, we went through that pretty quickly. I think we only had our only luxury was like a few cigarettes and 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 a pack of biscuits. Um, but yeah, it, there was, it turns out there are actually another couple of fishermen camping down there. Um, I went up to one of the camps and and traded him like a bit of um, a bit of homemade alcohol. A lot of a lot of crew here drink. Uh, it's called Pechi. Um, it's basically like a watered down version of Arak. So I swapped him. I swapped him a few chilies and 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 uh, a few few cigarettes and a bit of alcohol for some for some smoked fish, which kept us going. Um, and then on the second day, I went up to this other camp. Um, oh, we, we actually like I, I don't know. It's one thing that's been frustrating as well is like you put all this effort getting into this spot, and then like there's a few charter boats operating around the area, so you know you get down to this spot and there's waves, and you go, oh, we got it all to ourselves, and then a charter boat of, of sort of ten frothing surfers rocks rocks up, you know. Um, so yeah, this a charter rocked up. There are a few guys who who came who we surf with, and things were getting a bit desperate. We sort of asked them, "Well, you guys don't have any food that you'd be able to spare or anything?" And, and yeah, one of them said he was going to go back and ask the captain. And later that afternoon, we went up to this other other fishing camp to see if we could get a get a hand to tie my mate's surf rack back onto his bike. Um, and he yeah, the guy gave us a couple of like couple of big mud crabs. Um, he'd been yeah, he'd been fishing for mud crabs and the mangroves, and then the crew from the charter boat came in and, and brought a few beers in for us, and had a huge bag full of like snacks and a bit of tuna, and wow. so yeah, I mean, just relying on the generosity of other people, you know, it's it's yeah, I mean, I, I think travel is one of those things where it really helps to restore a kind of faith in humanity. I, I think, in essence, almost all people are, are, are good, generous people, and, and want to help. Um, and traveling and being forced into these positions where where you have to rely on the generosity of, of, of other people, it, it really restores a faith in humanity. And, and um, yeah, yeah, I, I suppose that's that's one thing that's um, become evident through the trip. Um, but yeah, we had we had a we had a mission getting back out as well. We 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 ended up staying for three days. Um, we got a few fun little waves down there, and we we sort of loaded back up again and gone to ride out. And it got about a K back up the hill. And I've, I've got a flat tire on my bike. Um, so my mate's gone to ride back down to the fishing camp to see if he can get some help, to see if they've got any tools down there to try and fix the tire. Two hours later, he comes back and he goes, look at this. He'd got a flat tire riding down as well. And the guys at the fishing camp had just like just used a bit of rope to, like, to tie his tire back onto the rim just to stop it from rolling off the rim. So, he's yeah, he's come back up with a bit of with a bit of rope we've managed to tie my tire back on um we only had like we probably only had 500 mils of water left like a fair way to go still no food um and it was getting pretty hot we weren't sure if we'd be able to get the bikes back up over that hill um and yeah we we got it we got a little way up and then my bike ran out of fuel so we were sort of stuck there on this on the side of the track in the heat trying to figure out what to do 
Um, my mate Webby, he ended up dumping all his gear. Um, he started riding to go and look look for help. Um, and I wasn't, yeah, I thought, oh, you know, what if, what if something happens to him and like, he's not able to come back with fuel and water. I was like, I'll just start walking and see how far I can get. Um, so I took my last diary, last little bit of water and started walking. Um, and yeah, he managed to go and get some help, managed to go and get some fuel and water. And it's, it's funny, you know, we, we're sort of battering down these, down these tracks, like carrying surfboards and gear on these, on these trail bikes. And you see these. You see these Indo guys just doing it on like a little Yamaha one two five sporty with like a you know just an esky full of fish strapped to the back. It's yeah, it's it's unreal. Um, so yeah, he he ended up um, finding some help and came back with some fuel and water and and he got a lift back to the, back to the bike and and yeah, is um, um, a guy who came to this the Sumbanese guy who came to give us a hand invited us to his place and sort of watered us, watered us down with coconuts and, and wouldn't wouldn't take any money, you know. It's Yeah, it's just, yeah, there's it, such a generosity of spirit here, you know. It's, it, people here really do go out of their way to help and it's it's such a beautiful place to, to explore and experience. It's amazing, man, what you're saying there about the generosity of spirit and, and the just the fact that traveling when done properly i.e with purpose and outside of the the regular old tourist traps the whole experience is almost like just this endless meditation on the kindness and generosity and and the better attributes of the human spirit and Mm. it's 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 life-changing like uh definitely changed my life and i think that's one of the real bonuses of surf travel like we've got a, a purpose we, we, we have a, a reason for being there that's taking us to, to weird places um, where, you know, you're not generally getting tourists. So you, you're ending up with, with really like kind of shocked locals uh, who, uh, you know, are not used to interacting with uh, foreigners and as a result are not jaded by the experience of, too much interaction with westerners and are genuinely there to help you and it's it's yeah. radical eh? i i can't imagine uh how uplifting this whole experience has been mm, mm, for sure i mean it's not it's not easy though i mean it's like there's definitely easier ways to get around it's it, i mean traveling like this it's i mean even just trying to find the basic necessities become a struggle you know it's it's life life is kind of distilled down to its most basic elements it's like well where where am i going to get food from where am i going to get water from where where am i going to sleep tonight but i think the blessing in that is also the struggle of it as well you know it's 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 distilling life down to its most basic necessities and and through that it it reminds me of what's really truly important you know What, what what actually matters i mean I think in the Western world, there's this tendency to complicate everything and, and to seek something more, something something beyond that. But I mean, it, yeah, it, traveling in this way, it, it it's it's a way of reminding myself that these sorts of things shouldn't be taken for granted, you know. And and, and the Indonesian people have a beautiful way of doing that. You know, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, food, water, shelter. I mean, they're all things that that these people don't take for granted. The only wave I've ever heard of in Sumba is Oki's left uh, at Niawatu, and you actually went there and mm. and had a had an audience with Claude, the guy who owns the joint. What was that experience like? Mm. Yeah, so I, I reached out to Claude. Uh, um, he had just returned back to Sumba. 
I went and caught up with him. I, I wanted to find out more about, uh, I mean, obviously when most people think of Sumba, that's that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind. That's probably the most prolific thing related to surfing in Sumba. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's a really controversial thing as well, you know, because I mean, that resort has basically taken over that particular patch of ocean, stopped other people from coming in and like charges, you know, charges people to surf. Basically, it's it basically commodified the, the act of surfing. Um, I mean, Cord, yeah, I, I wanted to find out more from Cord. He's a really interesting character. Um, he actually... He, he actually walked uh, across half the island of Sumba. He had this, he had this, he traveled around the world. Um, surfing and he, he had this dream of, he really wanted to build this resort somewhere and he, he traveled around the world to Madagascar and, uh, and other places looking for the perfect spot to find his resort. Um, and he came to Sumba. He, he, he said he wanted somewhere that still had really strong, a really strong culture and really strong traditional beliefs. He had a few criteria. Obviously it had to be beautiful. There had to be good surf. Um, there had to be, there had to be hills because I mean, to build a luxury resort, you, you need some elevation. Otherwise, you know, if you've got kind of villas down the front, villas up the back, the ones down the back don't have a view if it's flat. Um, so he, he walked across half the island of Sumba um, trying to find the perfect spot to build this resort. Um, this was in the 80s uh yeah 70s 80s and he was um he was saying that back then it was it was really still quite tribal um and a lot a lot of the a lot of the tribes were at war with each other and so he he would he'd, he'd hire a group of guys he was traveling with surfboards and cooking stuff and camping gear and he'd, he'd hire a group of guys to carry all or with he was traveling with his wife um and he'd yeah he'd hire a group of guys to carry his stuff for him and they'd get to the edge of their tribal boundary and, and kind of not want to go on into the next tribal boundaries. That they'd stop and leave, and he'd have to go and go and find, um, go and find, yeah, new new guys to cut his gear. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like he was quite scientific about the process as well. He was he was taking sand samples from different beaches and 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 wanted to measure the quality of the sand, and he he really wanted to find the perfect spot to build this resort. Um, and he said, as soon as he set foot on, on Iwatu, he, he knew that that was that that was it. That was the place, you know. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to see that wave at its best um, or surf it, um, but a lot of people do say it's it's the best wave in Sumba. Um, but I mean, talking with Claude, it, it's it's a pretty controversial thing what he's done. Talking with him, I kind of understand what he's tried to do. Um, I mean. A lot of places you go, uh, a lot of surf camps are, are, are basically, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of places around the world have basically just become kind of surf ghettos, you know. Um, and so he sort of wanted to create this place where you could still come with your kids and your family and your, yeah, and your wife and, and enjoy the luxuries of this place without, um, yeah, without, without too much of a, a um that sort of surf ghetto experience you know um and i i mean i i asked him I, I said you know do you think the state of surfing now do you think the ability to surf good quality waves without a crowd is now a privilege that you have to pay for and and i mean you look at a lot of the way that we like that everybody else travels i mean that's 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 kind of what we're all seeking isn't it you know and we're all spending money to go to these places 
and to to be able to try and do that. Not not everyone has the luxury that I've that I've got where I've I've got all this time and I can explore and, and really get off the beaten track and, and try and seek that out. You know, if you've got a mortgage and a family and kids and you want to be able to experience that, I mean, this is, you know, a resort like that is kind of one of the only places that you're, that, that you're able to go and do that. And that's, that's guaranteed as well, you know, and, and a lot of us spend a lot of money trying to, trying to seek that, trying, trying to find that as well. So, I mean, I, I guess in his logic, it's like, well, why not just make that an easily an easily available an option that's easily available to everyone? You know, um, yeah. He actually he he sold the resort. Um, I think about 10, 10 or twelve years ago. Um, and there's a there's an American family that have that have taken it over the the Birch family. Um, I mean, in in Claude's thinking, it was you know the wave was only exclusive to guests. Um, you didn't have to pay for waves, but yeah, with the new owners, it's now, you know, there's now a schedule. You, you've got to pay, I think it's a hundred, hundred US dollars for a two hour session. Um, and yeah, it basically commodified this, this natural resource of, uh, of waves, you know? Um, yeah, it's a pretty controversial thing. It's a lot of local people. It's not really well received by them, but I mean, Claude's also set up a foundation that have done a lot of good work. Um, they're, you know, they are really giving back. There's a Sumba Foundation that are providing education and employment opportunities and like fresh drinking water and malaria treatment to people that are there, um, to, to, to local people. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a controversial thing. I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I agree with both sides of the argument, you know, I can, I can, I can see the benefits of both and I, I can, I can see the, the, the controversial part of both as well, but it's, yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty interesting thing, you know. Mm. It's a strange paradox too, because I don't know of many good surfers who are rich. Like mm. gen generally, those two things kind of cancel each other out. If you focus your life on making money, the chances are you haven't been able to dedicate the requisite time to surfing to be able to even surf those waves properly. And we saw that in in Tavarua, you know, where it became this kind of uh refuge for google employees and, and just wealthy kooks and swell after swell went unridden there for for years while it was privatized like the proper swells you know what i mean um mm. and i imagine it's a similar situation at claude's uh, or at Niwatu a, a lot of the time where the people who are paying the exorbitant amounts of money to stay there just aren't up to the task to to take full advantage of the world class and fucking pretty consequential wave out the front. Mm, mm, for sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it'd be pretty. It'd be pretty cool to be able to sample it, you know. Um, but yeah, it's obviously it's obviously a privilege that's kind of only available to the elite few. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 an interesting. I mean, especially in that part of Sumba as well, where there is a little bit more tourism. It's it's an interesting crowd. Um, there's not a lot of kind of like grassroots level um well surfing infrastructure you know that there's kind of like a lot of these really expensive resorts that attract that sort of clientele you know guys who don't have a lot of time haven't really been able to dedicate that time to surfing but 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 do have money um and yeah there's this the, it doesn't really like it's it's far it's far from bali it's it's hard to get there it's hard to get around and explore and so it's yeah um there's there's kind of not that much else you know 
Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely interesting the crowd in the water. Um, it's definitely easy to get waves at a place more so than a place say like Desert Point or, or, or somewhere where the level of surfing is really high. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting place for sure. And tell us a bit about your travel partner Webby. Uh, you were saying he spent five months in an Archonese prison. <laughs> for yeah, yeah. So I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I met I met Webby. I was staying. I stayed in West Samoa for a month. Um, I camped, yeah, I, I sort of got, I got pretty lucky there. Um, a friend of a friend had just built a place right out the front of Super Sucks and my man introduced me to him and, and, and we got along pretty well. And, you know, more about traveling, travel, restoring the faith, restoring a faith in humanity. He sort of, he let me crash at his place for a month. Um, Webby, yeah, Webby, Webby came there a bit later on. Um, and he, he, yeah, he mentioned that he, he mentioned that he'd kind of he'd spent this he'd spent all this time in Archonese prison for overstaying his visa by five days. I, I wasn't. It's all sounded a bit sus to me, you know. I've gone, oh, this got you know, overstaying your visa by five days. It doesn't quite equal five months in Archonese prison and, and 17 thousand Australian dollars to get out. So I was, I was a bit curious, but yeah, um, he was he was he. I told him about what I was doing, and he was kind of curious. He, he wanted to come and join me at, at at some point, which was cool. It was good. It was good to have a bit of company, and and um, it kind of it gave me a little bit of a safety net to push a little bit harder and explore and having you know having someone with me and and, and go a bit more remote. Um, but yeah, he told he, he told me the story. He so he like oh he was he, he was a bit sick. Um, I think he wanted to stay in Arche a bit. There was a swell coming. He wanted to stay in Arche a bit longer to go surfing. So he he changed the he went and got, yeah he changed the date on his visa. Uh, um, just kind of added an extra one extra one or something. <laughs> thinking it had slipped past the immigration and yeah 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 it didn't didn't turn out too well for him. Yeah, because Indonesians um, don't have but, impeccable attention to detail on fucking everything. They're unbelievable. You can't get anything <laughs> yeah. past them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So yeah, he, he told me about the experience. It sounded like a it sounded like a pretty interesting experience. It didn't sound too frightening. It sounded um yeah, I mean he's he was basically, you know, he was in there during Ramadan. Um, so sort of while he was there, no one would kind of bring him water or food during the day. So yeah, I think the five months he was in there, he's pretty much just living off dried noodles and and water and cigarettes. You know, um, it would have been an eye opening thing for sure. I don't, I don't, I don't think he'd be fudging his passport again anytime soon. Eh? So. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah I've, I've I've been to one prison in Sumatra uh, to visit this kid uh august Fremanto, who got locked up uh after winning a comp at hts actually just there was like a a little roach she got passed and uh ended up getting yeah put away in prison the the cops i guess oh. caught wind of what was going down and he got done for just that little bit of pot and i think what a lot of people don't realize about indonesian prisons is they're like mate they're so bodgy and ramshackle it's unbelievable mm. you, when you're in there you can't even tell who's a guard and who's a fucking inmate? Like everyone's mm. kind of just in plain clothes, bare feet. Everyone's smoking darts, uh, mm. and it's. But they're also <laughs> incredibly under resourced, super overcrowded. You know, in that one, that one had made some like 
UN watch list for overcrowding that prison. It's at Padang actually in, in Sumatra. And uh, yeah, you know, I think there was like, it was hundreds of people in a cell. So like, it was like kind of one big cell and yeah, you do your best. Mm. So uh, Arche as well, that's, you know, the Sharia law, like the, mm. the hard line Islamic part of Indonesia where, yeah, during Ramadan, if you get caught, eating uh in the inappropriate hours during the daylight hours you can get killed i've heard of cops getting killed there um actually by mm. the religious police mm. for for eating during the, the daylight hours during ramadan so mate mm. fuck that's wild yeah. Arche is like as pretty much as far out of bounds as uh, as sumba in the other direction mm. Mm, for sure yeah and yeah he was saying it was interesting seeing some of the people that were in there you know he was saying a lot of the people who he was in there with were basically just really petty criminals who couldn't afford to pay their way out of prison. You know, I mean, I suppose in Indonesia, the one thing about Indonesia is there's a lot of gray area in this country. Things aren't really black and white. Um, and, you know, that's hard enough to deal with sometimes on a day-to-day -day basis. But then when you're tied up with the legal system, he wasn't given a court date for sort of like three or four months. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, there's no real process that he had to follow. It's, it's kind of like, well, what do I do next? How do I get out? It's like, you, you know, you have to, you sort of have to just talk to this guy who can talk to that guy who can, you know, maybe pay that guy and like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the sorts of people that were in there, he said there were people in there for, for, for being gay or, um, you, you know, just, yeah. Um, like like sex before marriage or um yeah you know all sorts of crazy things like that so it's, yeah it's a pretty pretty eye eye open experience for him he said he said the day you know he said the day he got out if you ever seen that simpsons episode where homer simpson's running around in circles going whoop, 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 whoop. he said yeah. he reckons yeah yeah he reckons he reckons he was doing that the day he got out holy smokes that's heavy fucking hell mm. and so um mm. I don't know if you were still with him, but you mentioned that you guys uh, got dropped on an island uh, with nothing but a, an abandoned resort, and there was some big turtle mm. massacre went on there or something. Yeah, yeah. So after after that um, after that pretty eventful trip down down to the beach, we, there was there was a little bit of swell coming. Um, we were like we were still, yeah, we were in an area where there was still the potential to to maybe score some good waves. Um, I knew this island where there where there were some waves. Um, like before I started on this trip, I worked. I, I, I sort of I worked pretty closely with Jim Banks. Who, you know, he kind of he he knows it all. Every every little nook and cranny of Indo, he's he's been there. Um, so yeah, I, I tied in with Jim. He he shaped us a sort of one board quiver for the trip. Um, and I, I've been in contact with him a bit. He, he's given us a few pointers and and sort of told us where might be good at the right time, which is which has proved really invaluable. You know. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to get to this place. Um, we rode for after getting the bikes sorted as best as we could. We rode for about well, we rode for three hours down this rough road. We got there just on sunset, and there's kind of just this little seaweed fishing village. Um, I went, I went and found the, the head of the village and asked if he was able to offer us a place to stay and maybe help us try and sort a boat ride out to the island in the morning. Um, yeah, he gave us he sort of. He, he gave us he gave us a room to stay in and, and cooked some food for us um and then the next yeah the next day we, we got a boat sorted we went out to this island um the boat driver he worked for pln which is basically the equivalent of like say um telstra like an energy energy provider in in 
in Australia. Um, he was carting, he was yeah, he was carting three thousand liters of diesel back to from the mainland over to this island for for the generator which supplied power over there. Um, so he had it, yeah, he had it, he had it split up between these two two boats, like two big long twelve meter wooden wooden um, Indonesian fishing boats. Each like one was one was powered by like a, a twenty five horsepower motor. The other one just had like basically a converted whipper snipper motor with like a, a big long shaft and a tiny little twin prop off the end. Um, wow. and so with, yeah, we're, we're putting with, with over every there. with every Indonesian crew member chain punching darts while they're driving the diesel across the channel no doubt yeah yeah he was he was just sitting on he was just sitting on the back he, he kind of got one of the younger guys to drive the boat and then just went and plonked himself on these barrels of diesel and just sat there chain smoking dories right on top of the right on top of the barrels you know i was i was a little bit worried eh? yeah yeah so um but so so this island that we want this this there, there were two islands out there one had a population of about 800 people who were pretty much squid fishermen um and the other one was uninhabited um we had to go and drop the diesel off um at the at the populated island first um and then we sort of we were going across kind of the only day that there was going to be waves and we sort of yeah we got there we had to wait for him to have like a um to have a like to, yeah to eat and have a sleep um before he'd drive us over to the other island so we didn't we didn't get going to go across to the other one for about oh until about four or five o'clock in the arbor. Um I, I tell you, like patience is probably one of the most valuable commodities you can have in Indonesia. You know, things nothing nothing happens too fast here, especially once you get out into the, the more remote parts of the country, you know. Um so yeah, he, he packed us a few bags of rice and and basically all people have got to eat out there is just rice and squid. You know, I never I never knew there were so many different ways you could cook squid. <laughs> squid for breakfast, squid for lunch, squid for dinner. Um, but yeah, he he yeah he he packed us he packed us a bit of squid and some rice, and ended up taking us out to this island. We got dropped in this island for a couple of days with a bit of water and some rice and some squid. And by the time we got there, like this wave was a fair way offshore. It was probably it was probably a good half a mile offshore. And I, I started paddling out and got halfway out to it, and it was it was too dark, you know. Uh, yeah, I didn't 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 get to surf. We kind of missed the only day of fun waves. Um, and then, yeah, like this whole island, it was pretty small. It was probably like maybe a couple of hundred meters across by maybe like a kilometer long. And a lot of it had been burned. And there were like, there were hundreds and hundreds of like turtle carcasses there. And I was kind of like, oh, this is, you know, this is pretty weird. Um, and asked asked locals about it a bit later on. And they said, yeah, people like the turtle meat's worth quite a lot of money. Um, so this island was like obviously a nesting ground, um, and yeah, locals say that guys just went there and while these turtles were nesting and, and basically just massacred hundreds of turtles, took you know, took all the meat and kind of burned the island to dispose of all the evidence. I mean, yeah, it's like yeah, it's saying like turtle meat goes, it's sold in the city. Turtle meat goes for like two hundred and fifty thousand rupee a kilo. Um, one like a small turtle's maybe a kilo, and 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 like a big turtle, it twenty five kilos. It's like you know that's kind of the equivalent of basically two. Like one of those big turtles is kind of basically the equivalent of two months' salary for for an Indonesian fisherman. You know. Wow. Um. Yeah. So it was it was pretty thousand, sad. It's about it, it's like say ten thousand to a dollar, give or take, an Australian dollar. So mm. people mm. do the yeah do the, do the maths at home. But yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. About 10, 10 grand worth of gold money, basically. You know, so yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. So it was, it was, it was pretty sad. You know, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty horrific. Um, but you know, I suppose people are just doing what they can do to get by, and I, I guess the environment. One thing I've noticed about Indonesia is the environment is a very different thing to Indonesian people to what it is in Australia. You know, I, I think. Um, maybe in Australia, a lot of that stems from, I mean, I think Australia has been more indigenized than it gives itself recognition for. And I think maybe a lot of it stems from, from that indigenous culture where the, the natural environment is, is basically a divine thing. You know, it's, 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 it's something that a lot of the stories that make up that culture are weaved around and, and, and it's, it's integral to those stories. Um, and in Australia, it's it's really something to be respected and and preserved. Whereas in Indonesia, where you know people are like life's kind of a constant struggle to get enough money to get food and cigarettes and and um, it's basically a resort like a, a just a resource that's there to be exploited. You know. Mm. Yeah, far out. I mean, yeah, desperate people do desperate things and uh, that's just the, the nature of poverty isn't it like the mm. the flip sides of poverty are always uh you know it's yeah desperate people acting out either in ways of crime and and, and like that's mm. what you see in places like brazil and south africa and uh in indonesia where you know like crime is is dealt with so punitively like uh, you know you, you if you, if you get caught thieving, you, you're getting bashed to death in, in broad daylight mm. by whoever catches yeah. you or, or you're getting, you know, hacked up with machetes on the spot, like, and no one's come and ask questions. So I guess the desperate acts tend to be inflicted on nature and, and resources, whether it's cutting down timber, pl planting palm oil, massacring turtles, um, you know, fucking massacring orangutans, uh, selling illegal wildlife uh, in, in markets. Uh, yeah, it's kind of endless, and that's that. That's the karma, I guess, of um, you know, the the neo-colonial exploitation of that archipelago, and that is also a big part of the the narrative of Indonesia and and why they're in the situation they're in is just decades upon decades of first dutch exploitation and then um you know essentially european and american exploitation um uh, from during the sahara era or facilitated by sahara leaving them now in a situation where uh yeah the the, the inequality the wealth inequality is so fucking mind-bogglingly outrageous mm. like the the point one percent or the one percent of the population compared to everyone else and yeah mm. i mean that that's what i essentially blame Turtle massacres on is, is that level of inequality basically? Like that, that, that mm. what else? What what other reason is that? Mm. It's true. I mean, I think like I think I think part of that is you know parts of these things are kind of born out of necessity for survival. But I think I think there's an, also an element of greed there as well, which is which is kind of endemic to all human beings, you know. But but yeah, like you say, I think that does come from that inequality, you know, it's like, yeah, if, if these people see other people with, you know, or hear, hear stories of other people with kind of all these nice things and, and, and new motorbikes and, and nice handphones and, you know, even, even guys like me and Webby with the luxury to be able to travel to these 
places with the surfboard and and and, and explore and and go surfing, which is which is an activity that's completely based around pleasure. You know, I mean, if they see and experience all these things, why shouldn't they be able to have that as well? You know, mm. um, so yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sure the cost of covering the basic needs of your average Indonesian would be so low compared to Australia. Mm. I know there's those studies here where you know once you make 80 grand a year uh the kind of graph of happiness tapers off dramatically like it goes pretty steep until you hit a certain Mm. basic income and then beyond that money doesn't really afford you any increase in happiness in indonesia that number is probably around fucking annually 10 grand or or 15 grand Mm. and then you you consider Mm. that sahado during his uh, dictatorship embezzled, I believe it was around 35 billion, making him, yeah, right, making him the like right up there. I believe the most corrupt dictator of all time. He's definitely in the top three. Oh. I know that the Marcoses from uh, the Philippines are in that, that, that top three convo too. And again, that you know, the Philippines, another capitalist American uh, dictatorship, just like Indonesia. So, yeah, uh, I mean. That that's the situation. That's the world we live in. Um, and mm. fuck yeah, the people in the the planet planet pay for the misdeeds of nihilistic, greedy scum, and that culture of greed filters down. You know, through every layer of the population, when the leader of the country is doing that, and everyone knows it, will the average Joe's like fuck it? Now is my opportunity to get mine. Like these turtles are gonna die. Mm. 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 Yeah, but I mean, it's it's funny looking at that that thing of, of wealth not equaling happiness as well. I mean, like going back to going back to Claude and and, and you know him building his luxury resort there at at Niwatu. He there was a lot of land there that he acquired. He said he said it took him nine and a half years to acquire all that land. There was like quite a like land ownership in Indonesia is quite a complex thing. You know, it's like one brother thinks he, it's his and the other thinks it's his and no one's kind of got any papers for it, and so he he acquired all this land off, off different, off off different clans and 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 different family groups to build this resort. Um, and during that during that nine and a half years that he was there, and that and that and the, the two and a half years after, or uh, yeah, two and a half years afterwards that he was building his resort, he basically just lived in a shack on the beach out the front out the front of Nihuatu. He said the closest road ended three kilometers away. He had like a little four-wheel drive that he'd just go to town and and buy rice and, and and you know a few basic supplies and he had a little zodiac out the front that he'd whip around in and go surfing and and go fishing and he was saying that time that he spent there living like that was actually probably the happiest that he'd ever been in his life um, and and he said that he actually enjoyed that he he found greater fulfillment in that than than. Um, than when his resort was was finally built and and, and open to the public. Yeah, I believe it. I I guess the only difference is that if Claude gets seriously ill or injured, or one of his children gets seriously ill or injured, he can pay for their healthcare. Whereas that's a situation mm. that most Indonesians are not in, and that's mm. when money really matters. Is is really for getting emergency. Healthcare for for you or your loved ones. What watching loved ones die in front of your eyes of curable diseases or um, treatable injuries, like that's mm. not that's not a reality that anyone in Australia has to 
deal with uh but it is a reality for everyone in indonesian one of your uh great interviews along the way i actually love that interview with the welder uh back in bali i think it was <laughs> mm, and yeah. uh yeah you know he was this older guy who took safety really seriously but just made the point that in indonesia like your safety is your own responsibility and um mm. yeah like <laughs> <laughs> mate there's fucking no safety regulations in that joint it's comical uh <laughs> so mm. on point mm. but it's I, I suppose like one of the beautiful things about indonesia that i find is it's it's kind of a country where you're ruled by your own stupidity you know there's there's not there's not so many rules and so many people telling you what to do and you can't do this and you can't do that and you're getting a fine if you do this it's like all right well you can do whatever you want but like if you do something stupid there's a chance that like you're going to get yourself into some sort of trouble and there's gone, you know, that's, that's on you. That's your own fault, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's a free country. It's life here is pretty free. It's, it's pretty easy. It's pretty cheap, but sometimes maybe a little bit too cheap as well as you're saying, you know? Mm-hmm. Now talk to us about some of the waves you scored. I understand uh, you and Budzibra, Ty, uh, Ty Graham had a, a classic session, uh, just the two of you mm. trading cones uh, on an island yeah, yeah. somewhere in the archipelago. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like I was saying, it's pretty hard to just roll up and, and score and, and kind of just stumble across waves where – you know, just kind of roll into like a really good day at a wave that you don't really know anything about. Um, I'd heard a little bit about about this particular wave. I knew there was there was a swell coming and and it might light up. I didn't really know what conditions it, it needed, or I just so yeah, I just I just took the chance. I know it's like it's either really fickle or really crowded you know so and if you want to surf without the crowd sometimes you just got to you just got to take the punt um and just have a gamble and, and go out there and, and see what's out there and, and yeah so I, I did it was it's kind it's it's a fair way offshore it was like a 40 minute paddle um to get out there um it was yeah it was solid when i got out there i was kind of i was kind of watching it for a bit i was pretty i was yeah i was pretty grateful that that um ty was there he had his mate harrow there um it was on a ski in the channel taking photos um yeah ty, ty ty looked after us he gave us he gave us a vest he sort of showed us the ropes a bit about a, a little bit out there um and yeah it was it was oh it was one of those all-time sessions you know it's like yeah i mean you go to nihuatu and sort of pay thousands of dollars a night to 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 be able to have that experience to be able to surf really good waves you know either on your own or just with just with you and one other mate or another couple the guys out you know um so yeah the first the first day was it was, it was sort of it was pretty rogue um there were like there were some big 12 foot sort of clean up sets like keeping us both on our toes um i lost yeah i lost i lost the board i got my leggy leggy ripped off ty loaned us another board and um yeah so yeah it was yeah it was, it was an all-time session and, and, and yeah Thanks to him for showing us the ropes out there and, and looking after us over that couple of days. It was yeah, epic, epic few days. Um, and I don't know. I suppose like people when I when I started off on this trip, people sometimes ask me. They said, "Oh, where where are you going?" You know, it's like, and I don't know if this trip ever had a destination. Like, I don't know. I don't know if a journey needs to have a particular destination. It's not to me. It's not. 
I want to get to this particular point and then turn around to go home. It's more, it's more of a peak, you know. I think I think the journey more has it has this peak. It has this this kind of climax where you arrive and like all the roads have kind of led you to that point, and it's like this is kind of what it's all about. And then from there, it's kind of like a downhill run, you know, it's sort of starting to make make your way home and turning around and going back. And 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 for me, that was that was definitely the peak of that trip. You know, it felt like all the the roads kind of led me up to that point. That was that was that was sort of the climax of it all. You know? Amazing, man. And did you lock into any any solo sessions? Uh, I think you mentioned that you, you you did get some some pretty consequential ways and uh, ended up actually getting into a bit of a pickle on your own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like, it's the waves in Sumba are pretty fickle. It's it's definitely a lot more raw than other parts of Indo. It's it's a pretty exposed coast. Um, it's pretty yeah. It's pretty wild. It's it's kind of similar to surfing like a. I'd compare it maybe to like a tropical version of WA or, or, or something, you know. Um, and so yeah, there was this there's this one wave I, I wanted to go and surf. Um, there's like a, a short boat ride out there. Um, uh, yeah, no one was like no one around the surf camps was keen on coming, so I was sort of I, I just yeah I went on my own. Um, and from like there there's no real channel. I saw a couple of good sized sets um, and then I sort of jumped off and went and sat in the channel for like 15 minutes and, and watched it. And I saw a few, it sort of breaks right in front of these cliffs. Um, there's kind of no way to get, get on or off the land. Um, and yeah, I, I watched it for a bit. I saw some really good ones. It was pretty frothing and, and, and paddled over. Um, and as soon as I paddled over, there's this rogue like 10 foot clean up set came through. I just managed to sneak under the first one um and the second one like i kind of just got under and then sucked me back and, and pinned me to the reef like ripped my leggy off um like i still i still had my board in my hands but the next one i copped around the head and, and had to like i i should really have bailed but i didn't i didn't kind of have that option i just had to try and duck dive and the thing just like the board just disintegrated in my hand wasn't sure if I was going to be able to try and swim back out through the closeout to try and get to the boat, you know, it was, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's, I love surfing on my own. Um, it does take a little bit of getting used to. Um, but yeah, when you get yourself into a bit of a situation, it's, you know, you, you, you're pretty much, you've only got yourself to rely on and try and get you out of there, which sometimes can be a little bit frightening too. Mm. And then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, you, you visited some of those name waves at the start of your journey, uh, deserts in particular, like what's the situation down there like? Well, it's pretty full on. I didn't enjoy surfing there too much. You know, you basically, you got to waves. Um, yeah. I mean, Claude, you're talking about those surf ghettos and, and the state of surfing at the moment and the way that things have become. I think I think deserts is a pretty prime example of that. You know, I mean, it's one of the best waves in the world. But yeah, I think one of the things I've noticed in Indo as well, when it comes to crowds as well, it's it's really different to a lot of other places in the world that I've surfed where there isn't there aren't a lot of local surfers here and there aren't there isn't really anyone kind of enforcing that that sort of that hierarchy or that order that's sort of necessary to maintain peace sometimes, you know, and, and, and a lot of crew, you get a lot of crew who have 
paid a good amount of money to come from different parts around the world to surf good waves and they've got a short period of time in which they're able to do that you know and so it's it, yeah it becomes a bit of a free-for-all sometimes it's like everyone kind of just wants to get their fill and, and convert the money that they've spent into into good waves and and like there's no real fear of repercussion if they you know if they if they behave in a way that's kind of uh, disrespectful to other people it's a bit of a mess sometimes you know um so yeah i mean obviously it's like it, yeah it's, it was pretty unreal to see that 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 wave at its best but yeah i didn't i didn't enjoy surfing there too much um and i think it was a, a pretty good example of some of the 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 like yeah the the negative state in in that surfing has evolved into you know mm. and you mentioned uh jim banks a little bit ago i mean i'm think he's the guy who found deserts or if if not like among the, the very first to to surf it mm. uh mm. yeah talk to us a bit about you know the sort of inspiration you drew from banksy he, he features it in your documentary series uh he's an absolute icon and pioneer of, of surf travel particularly in indonesia an incredible talent an incredible shaper yeah what was it like to have an audience with the great man yeah, yeah, he, he had had a good yarn with Banksy. He's a, he's a pretty interesting cat. Um, I, I, one thing, one way in which I really related to him was, I mean, he, he, you know, he was on he was on the he was on the pro tour for a bit. He was into competitive surfing, and he 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 in I think he won the on pro in um, at Uluwatu in 1981. Um, and after that, basically, just turned his back on competitive surfing and and walked away from it all to go on get you know and hollow feeling that he'd felt you know it's kind of like well what what's what's next you know is it is, is there something more than this um and yeah i mean i i think obviously within surfing there's you know there's the waves are a finite resource you know there's kind of a limited amount for it and there's competition within that but i think that to me that that kind of goes against the sur the spirit of what i think competition goes against the spirit of what surfing actually means to me you know i mean it's 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 about um finding some finding some solitude and 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 some peace and and some enjoyment you know and if you if you got to sort of compete with other people to try and find that it, it or 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 try and be better than somebody else it, it kind of it, it yeah it sort of defeats what what that what surfing means to me you know and I, I, yeah i related to banksy in, in in that way as well um that he you know he preferred to just just go and sort of find the best ways that he could and 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 go and get kind on his own and, and wasn't really looking for any kind of recognition or hype you know obviously he had to find ways to be able to finance himself to be able to do that but yeah it's it's it it's kind of surfing distilled down to its most pure and basic form surfing alone especially tube riding as well i mean that's that's kind of the ultimate goal isn't it you know it's it's, it's something of it's something of like a divine experience you know the world's kind of exploding around you and you're you're you're, you're sort of traveling through it traveling through space and and time and kind of skirting this this fine line between elation and and and, and destruction you know it's yeah love that description 
Yeah, and talk us uh, through your trusty steed, man, the, the black camel, a, a petrol lid held yeah. together by glue and cigarette butts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, the black camel. I was, I was, I was wondering what to call it. Um, I sort of, I was racking my brains for ages, and, and one guy I met out in the surf, this guy Nathan, he he he, came, he he coined it. He was, um, yeah, always all, never thirsty, always dry. He reckons, which is kind of a pretty ironic description, you know, because it's yeah, it's pretty much always thirsty. It chews through a bit of juice, and yeah, it's been down a few beaches, so it's, yeah, it's it's never really too dry. So, um, but yeah, it's like it's it's a classic. It's a classic Indo bike. It's sort of just all coddled together from. You know, it's got a Yamaha motor. It's got a higher sun frame, a Suzuki key. It all sort of slapped together in <laughs> in some Indo backyard garage. They've done a pretty good job. It's it's held together, you know. It's and um, yeah, it's it, it's it's definitely got a bit of character, you know. It's, yeah, it's it's been a pretty faithful steed. I'll be sad to see it go, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose vehicles are one of these things that we sort of develop a connection with over time. You know, it's like yeah, like I think. But after after sort of battering it down a few of those rough tracks, I think if anyone anyone else was to ride this bike, it would sort of, it would just fall apart beneath them, you know. But you sort of develop a connection with the machine after you know after spending so much time on it, it becomes like an extension of you, almost as much a part of you as arms and legs, you know. And I think I think you see the same thing with cars as well. Like cars are like inside the car you know it's like you know somebody the moment you step into their car it's kind of it's a reflection of, of who they are it's, yeah and, and yeah vehicles are an interesting thing i find they kind of they, like dogs you know they sort of they come to take on a bit of their owner's personality after all so yeah <laughs> oh, that's good and uh and and banksy single board quiver man what did he make out in the end uh i went, went a six five twenty uh, Revolution twin pin that he, he was raving about. I've never really been a fan of twin pins. Um, I kind of always disliked them. I, I found they had just for the lack of drive and the lack of the lack of hold. You know, obviously they're, they're fast, they're they're, they're skatey, but yeah, I, ne- I never really liked them that much. But Banksy was raving about this one. He had a few. He he he, he had. Maybe, um, yeah, something like a 6.2 or a 6.3. Convinced us to go a 6.5. He just said, no, this will do everything that you want it to do. You know, you'll be able to ride it and sort of like anything from double overhead to to, to waist high. Um, and, yeah, it's been it's been a magic board. Um, I Yeah, he reckons he, he was saying that all the, you know, all the, the, all the drive and, and, the, and the, it doesn't really feel like a twin fin, you know. It's got a lot of drive. It's got a lot of hold. And he was saying all that comes from the from the fin base. It's got like a he makes his fins for it that have got a really long fin base, um, and combo- which combined I think are, are more than your standard thruster, you know. So it's yeah, it did take a little bit of getting used to, but yeah, it's been it's been an unreal board. Um, and it's a yeah, it's a unreal. channel bottom as well. No, so I got a I was traveling with two boards. Um, he got another channel bottom single fin as well that that um, Phil Myers shaped us based on a based on an early Cole Smith design. Classic. Um, it's been a good. Um, yeah, I'm kind of. I was I was thinking maybe I should only take one. It'd be a lot easier to travel around. Um, I'm kind of glad I brought two because yeah, I, I snapped one, so I would have been in a bit of trouble without without that. 
Um, but yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty radical, frightening look, looking thing. It's like, it's yeah, the 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 Cole Smith design. It's got like a really narrow tail and these ten, ten channels that are really deep and go way up past the midpoint of the board. Um, it's a pretty unforgiving surfboard. It hates any kind of chop or any kind of wobble in the waves. Like the board sort of seems to cavitate a bit if if the wave face isn't real clean. Um, but yeah, in in the right in the right kind of waves like long line really clean perfect long lined up waves with a little bit of bottom tension it it, it goes unreal and i've kind of i don't know i've kind of always i've kind of always liked the single fin you know i i feel it it kind of like surfing on your own it sort of it distills surfing down to its most pure and basic form it's there's kind of not really a lot of room for unnecessary movement you know and and especially in, in hollow waves um you just yeah you sort of set your line and, and, and look for the tube you know there's there's not really too much else that you can do on them i suppose it's yeah 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 yeah, yeah i feel like single fins really suit a lot of the waves in indo because you've got that kind of uh you know that rolling situation mm. there you can get a early entry and, and just get a re draw a really good solid firm line through the tube um mm. you know so select ledges in indo anyway obviously the down the line ones where you got to get going supers and deserts and the like not so mm. single fin friendly but some of the others uh yeah it's, it's a good board for over that mm. Mm. for sure yeah yeah and good good to have yeah it's been good to have the combo as well and sort of be able to mix it up but yeah only 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 the channel bottom left now so yeah yeah and so what's the plan now? I understand you're heading back to West Oz uh, for the first time in, in eight years. So that's uh, all been spent in Indo, or where have you been for those eight years? Um, yeah, so I haven't haven't been back to Perth. Uh, I haven't, well, I mean, I, I haven't spent a significant amount of time in Perth for the last eight years. Most, most of my family's there. Um, my brothers just had a brothers just had a kid, um, and you know I suppose like like we spoke about in our last interview, you know I suppose a lot of the after the things that happened when I you know through my teenage years and when I was younger, I I, I felt the need to distance myself from that and to get away from Perth. I don't think it was running away. I think it was more giving myself the time and space to recreate my idea of who I was and, and, and who I wanted to be um, away from, you know, the, 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 the teenage ice addict and criminal that, that, that I had been. Um, and I actually had to physically remove myself from the place to be able to be able to do that. So yeah, I spent, I spent four or five years in Margaret river, um, a couple of years traveling around Oz um, and yeah, sort of the last, um, last six months on the road in Indo, but you know, I feel I've I feel I've reached this point now where I have I have been able to re, I have been able to recreate who I am. I'm 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 happy with who I am, um, and I feel you know I I would love to go overseas for an extended period at some point, and I feel like if I don't go back home and renew some of those relationships with family and put in that effort to try and heal some of those things. I mean, there's only so much I can do within my family, but but at least try and heal some of the, yeah, some of those things within myself. You know, it's I feel I really need to go give myself to kind of go back to Perth and 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 have that time to be able to do that. So it's yeah, it's it's 
it's a long journey to get back there. You've got to go from Sumba to to Bali, fly back down to Melbourne, um, fly up to Sydney for the walkies, back to Melbourne, and then drive back across to Nullarbor. So you've got a long way to go. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 excited. You know, I, I, yeah, um, I'm excited for what lies ahead. Yeah, that that's fascinating, man. You're on your way to the Walkleys, the the kind of big journalism awards night. So you'll be rubbing shoulders with the bourgeois media elites after six <laughs> months of sitting in the dust, eating uh, yeah, packet yeah, noodles yeah. With, with the Indonesian working class. Uh, well, I, don't, yeah. I, I don't think there'll be too much dried. You know, you're living off that island, just eating dried squid for three days. I don't think there'll be too much dried squid at the Walkleys, which I'm I'm pretty relieved about. <laughs> <laughs> Nah, it's all champagne and caviar at that end of town, my friend. Mm. Mm. Um, sure, yeah. yeah. What What do you? So you've been nominated for something? Or- yeah, yeah. Up for yeah. Um, been nominated for uh the feat the feature writing award, the long long feature writing award. So yeah, um, going up for that in the finals. I think there's three of us. Um, yeah, we'll see how see how I go. But it'll be a it'll be a pretty surreal experience you know sort of coming out of that yeah coming out of the jungle and, and, and straight into the walkways you know i don't know if i'm too prepared for it but yeah we'll see how we go what was the feature uh it was a four part yeah it was a four-part series i wrote on um learning to rediscover joy and learning how to love myself again after after the teenage years that i lost to juvenile detention and and, and ice addiction you know and i I feel like, you know, I, I travel around Australia trying to find that for a long time. I feel like this journey's kind of been an extension of that. You know, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, Indonesia, it's really a reminder of, of what's really important in life and, and, and the simple pleasures. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was a four part series that was, that was published in the West Australian um, and it's been nominated. So yeah, I'm stoked, stoked to be in the finals um, and yeah, stoked to be in the running. Oh, congratulations, man. That's amazing. Well done. Yeah, thanks, Jeb. Good on you. Fuck yeah. Jeez, um, yeah, right. So that's the journey home. And and, and so you fl- you're flying from Sumba to Bali? Uh no, I'll ride so I'll ride back it, it like I don't know the, yeah, I'll ride I'll ride back across. There's a couple of places I want to have a little bit of a look at on the way back through now that the winds are kind of starting to swing around and sort of opening up the southern coast a little bit more. Um, but yeah, a little bit of a pickle this morning. I, I went into town to go and grab a coffee and got pulled over by the cops on the way for not riding without a helmet. And they've, they've taken my rego papers and like in typical, yeah, in typical Indo fashion, I, I, I'm supposed to be leaving here the Sabo, but I can't get the rego papers back until I've gone and paid the fine at the bank. And I can't pay the fine at the bank yet because the internet system. And no one knows when it's going on and it's like, yeah, so. It could be could be here for another night of night of tour, I reckon. Um, but yeah, classic. yeah, they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't even sort of they wouldn't even take a bit of money under the table. I sort of you know I handed over my license with kind of fifty thousand sitting there, and he, he he gave it back. So it's you know it's maybe a state of how things are changing in Dallas. Yeah, I suppose a lot of the cops are, are maybe trying to clean up the image and you know that image of corruption that's kind of surrounded a, a, a lot of the forces of authority in Indonesia for a long time. Um, mm. Yeah, and uh, you know it's an amazing series. Uh, you can watch it on Scenic Route TV, and they're doing well, man. You know you're already up around ten thousand plays on the two episodes so far, and I imagine you're sitting on a a ton of footage that you're gonna 
chop up and and put out over the coming weeks. Mm, yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. There's yeah, I got I got some yeah, some some really good stuff, especially um over the past couple of months, you know, it's it's been pretty off the grid. Um and yeah, a pretty a pretty wild place, you know. It's yeah, it's been to a few places that not not a lot of people get the opportunity to go to, which has been really cool. And and um yeah, being able to record that, the the looking to make a documentary at some point down the track and and, and put all that together. Um and there's the yeah, um the series in, in in tracks as well on the on, on the journey to the Indo Motorcycle Diaries, which will run over the next over the next three or four months. So crew can read about it there as well. Stick, mate. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh yeah, what an epic journey, bro. Well done. Fuck you, you you've made it um safe and, and happy and healthy. Uh obviously you still got the return journey, but yeah, good on you. That's such a such a feat and and just all the benefits are I mean, all those human experiences that you've had, well done. Mm, for sure. Right on, Jed. Thanks for having us on the show, bro. Legend. On your time. See you, brother. Take care. Cheers, man. Take it easy.